This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. Today in our Toil and Trouble employment law slot, I'm talking to Duncan Cotterell Senior Associate Jeremy Ansell about a particularly high-profile case from last week in which high-profile microbiologist Dr Susie Wiles took on the University of Auckland over threats to her safety during the height of COVID. Jeremy, thank you for coming in. Um, now, this was first taken by both Sean Hendy and Susie Wiles, wasn't it? That's correct. So if we take this back to where it sort of started in 2021, um, Susie Wiles and Sean Hendy, two prominent microbiologists at the time, both employed by the University of Auckland in academic roles, took a claim uh, against the employer at the time, saying that the university had failed to take enough steps to protect their health and safety. So... As we all know, at that time, it was the height of COVID. Um, Susie Wiles and Sean Hendy were making a number of public statements about the vaccine, the pandemic, and giving a lot of public health messages. In the course of doing that work, they exposed themselves to a number of threats from um, the more you know, out there members of society, and they received a number of quite significant threats, and, threats to their safety as well. And what they argued at the time was that the university effectively said to them, we want you to pull back from engaging in that public commentary in order for you to protect your own health and safety at work. They say that the university took insufficient steps and didn't do enough. So where this got to in 2021 was the Employment Relations Authority decided uh, this was a serious enough case and there were serious enough legal questions that it warranted being what's called removed to the employment court to be heard. Um, I found it interesting that one of the reasons they said it should be removed at the time was because there was an urgent um, public question that needed to be addressed and yet here we are in 2023 and the matter's only just being heard. <laughs> but that's a little summary of how we got to the, the, the current employment law case which is being heard at the moment. So apart from telling those academics um, Taiho on commenting so much, did the university do anything at all? They did take some steps at the time um, and it could be arguable that those steps were sufficient. Um, in addition to telling them to pull back from the commentary, they did undertake a security review at the time. They engaged a third party to come in and look at um, not just online security but also physical security issues. Uh, to, to do what they could to protect these academics. Um, along the way, the, the Sean Hendy part of the claim was obviously settled. He's no longer part of the proceedings. But where we are now is, is Susie Wiles is in the employment court uh, arguing that the university did not do enough in order to protect her health and safety at work, even though some of the comments were not you know, made when she was sitting in an office yes. at the university. They were made in, outside of, of work time. What kind of things is her legal representation saying should have happened under Health and Safety? Yeah, it's really interesting. Under the Health and Safety at Work Act, you have what are called duty holders, right? So employees have an obligation themselves to do all they can to protect their own health and safety. Now, the university basically said to Susie Wiles, in order for you to protect your own health and safety, you need to pull back to meet your obligation and not put yourself into the public domain as much as you, you have been. 
but the university as what's called a PCBU, a person conducting a business or undertaking, and as an employer, they have an obligation to take what are called all reasonably practicable steps to ensure the health and safety of their workers. So you've got a really interesting legal question here of what are all reasonably practicable steps that the university could have and should have taken? Does it extend to organising things like um, security at at Susie Wiles' own residence if she's facing you know, threats from, from extreme members of society. And the court somewhere is going to need to draw the line as to what is reasonable for the employer to do in the circumstances that they were faced with at the time. But in this case, the, the employer seems to be making the case that actually she did this on her own time. It's not like she stood up and did a lecture which attracted the opprobrium. Yeah, exactly. That's part of it. Um, Effectively what the university is saying is she went beyond her remit as an academic and strayed too far into the public domain and I think there are aspects of that, for example I think she appeared on a a game show for TVNZ, you know she became somewhat of a public um, personality, I'm not Mm. for one minute saying she deserved the, the torrent of abuse that came her way. Um, but there's a causation issue how much of the effects that she experienced are actually attributable to the employer's actions or lack of action. Mm. And how does academic freedom come in here as a concept? So this is one of the reasons why the um, Employment Relations Authority moved it, sorry, removed it to the court in the first place, um, was because there's a conflict between this idea of academic freedom, which is basically that universities are meant to be the critic and conscience of society. University academics are meant to have the freedom to give maybe controversial, maybe unpopular views in the public domain, which is certainly what Wiles did. Many of her views were talking about the importance of lockdowns and social distancing, which weren't necessarily popular ideas at the time for some people. So there's a conflict between that principle of academic freedom um, versus the university saying to her, we need you to pull back and effectively curtail your academic freedom in order to protect your health and safety at work. Those Mm -hmm. two ideals kind of conflict. Susie's Wiles is effectively saying, I couldn't exercise the, the full extent of my academic freedom because I was told to pull back by my employer. And this case is ongoing, so you can't really speculate on how it might how it might um, come out. But do you think there is a case to answer that Wiles did go beyond her her remit? I think possibly. I think it's going to be. It may be harsh for a court to say the employer should have done more than a, you know an external security review and should have taken far greater steps in order to um, protect protect her from these quite extreme threats. I also wonder about the precedent value of the case because it it was an extraordinary time and an extraordinary set of circumstances. I do wonder uh, how applicable it's going to be to other employers because what employer is likely to face, you know, such a controversial, such an extreme set of circumstances? I wonder about that. Though employers may take something from the second case that you mentioned, which is Amanda Turner versus Te Whatuora. Can you just outline that one? Sure. So this is on a, a, I guess, a similar um, trajectory. Uh, Amanda Turner was a nurse for the Wairua Rapid DHB before it was, um, before it became Tefato Ora. At the time, th- this relates to a fact pattern in 2021 as well, which has only just been heard. So again, the, you know, the wheels of justice are, are slow. <laughs> um, 
what she did at the time was she made a number of uh, controversial posts on her personal Facebook page about aspects of the pandemic. So she um, she posted some memes. She was critical of the need for vaccination. She was critical of the Maori vaccination strategy or plan that was in place at the time. She was a palliative care nurse. A lot of her work took place at an aged care facility. One of the other one of her colleagues that worked at the aged care facility saw the posts uh, in question because they were connected on Facebook and brought those posts to the attention of the DHB as her employer. And to cut a long story short, there was a suspension. They went through a disciplinary process and the employer found that the nature of those posts severed trust and confidence and constituted uh, serious misconduct and she was dismissed for making these posts. Right. And what happened in the case that was brought before the Employment Court? So this was, yeah, sorry, this was all at the Employment Relations Authority. So she then challenged the dismissal at the Employment Court um, and the whole matter was, was reheard again, as is sometimes the case. Um, the, the employer, the DHB, argued that the, the posts, because of the nature of them, had the potential to undermine public trust and confidence in them as an entity and had the potential to damage their reputation. I think it's maybe significant here that she was, Ms Turner was working in an aged care facility, so obviously there's a connection there between the vaccine posts and the, um, the type of work. If she, had a, if she worked in a completely different area, maybe the employer would not have been able to make out that nexus um, but effectively when they made the dismissal and, and affected the dismissal they said your posts um, have been seen by other staff because you're connected to some of them on Facebook and because of that there's a reputational issue it might encourage our staff or people within our facility to um, not want to take up the vaccine at the time and they found that that was enough of a connection with the work to to justify the, the termination, right? Um, I mean, apart from the vaccine, she also talked. To, she also made anti-Muslim comments and other mm. things. She sounds like a, a real beach, this woman. Um, is yep. that enough? I mean, if if you post neo-Nazi memes mm. and things, it's a really tricky area, and I think we're going to see more and more yep. um, cases in this area because of the proliferation of social yes. media. Um, some of the posts, you're right, were anti-Muslim. Um, that doesn't necessarily draw a link to the employer, in, in my mind, because it's not related to health or the, or the vaccine. They were certainly, by the sounds of it, distasteful um, posts. But I, th I think it's interesting that the employer was able to get over the line there and show that just Ms Turner making those posts uh, was enough. One of the arguments she made at the employment court was that her um, her political beliefs had been discriminated against. Uh, that was particularly in relation to the vaccine posts. And I'm a little surprised that the court dismissed that argument quite so quickly because I think that there is maybe an argument there that um, the employer perhaps didn't like the tone of some of the posts being critical of the uptake of the vaccine and strategy for, for Maori to take up the vaccine and maybe that did factor into it so I'm, I'm surprised that argument didn't get a little more hearing um, time. Just finally, I mean this issue as you say does come up from time to time where employers take issue with personal posts. In general if we look across those cases has the, has, it, has the court tended to come down on the side of the employee being able to have freedom of expression? 
Well, not really in some of these cases, which is interesting. I mean, in the, the Turner case, for example, she her posts were only, I think, able to be seen by 86 friends of hers. So yeah. I'm not even sure there's enough widespread publicity there. Um, but in that case, it was, was significant that some of the Facebook friends were colleagues as well. Um, but I think the, the, the courts are coming down hard on some employees that make these types of social media posts, even if the connection with the employment is a little bit grey at times. And the risk is we, we go down a slippery slope where um, people feel they have to anonymise everything online or they just don't make contentious um, posts or give controversial opinions for, for fear of maybe employment repercussions. I'm not sure. You know, you don't want distasteful posts, obviously, but we certainly want people to be making controversial opinions in society and I, I worry that we're, we're going to see less of that because people become fearful of the employment consequences maybe. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website nbr.co.nz The new government faces an infrastructure deficit of $210 billion dollars. To talk about that challenge, I'm joined by Bill's chief economist, Hilmari Schultz. It's a lot of money. Um, how's, how come it's got so big? Hi. Um, I think it's decades of underinvestment in infrastructure that led us to this $210 billion hole that we're in. Um, I would say that about half of that is infrastructure that should have been built. Um, you know, those are roads and schools and hospitals. And about a hundred billion of that is actually infrastructure we need to build today to future-proof our economy for the next, you know, fifty or a hundred years. Yet at the same time, I think your column you, you put up the figures that show that on international comparisons, government spending's actually relatively high, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, currently, and I think that was also one of the big things around. Uh, during the election time, that government spending is quite high on infrastructure at present. But what it doesn't do, it doesn't look at the quality of that infrastructure and if it's value for money. So we've seen that the Infrastructure Commission has actually found that uh, New Zealand is one of the least effective or efficient high-income countries in delivering, delivering infrastructure. So what that means is the infrastructure that we do deliver does not match the amount of money that we are spending on those projects. Why is that? What are we doing wrong? I do think that we have some serious governance issues. Uh, one of the things we looked at is the OECD does a infrastructure governance indicators where it looks at um, is the money effectively and efficiently used? Is it fiscally sustainable? Um, is procurement effective? And on all those indicators, New Zealand ranked uh, low. So it means that the infrastructure we put in place does not translate to productive infrastructure that we can actually use to grow the economy. But, but we've been trying different things. I mean, you know, public-private partnerships, and I, I think I note that you also say we need to avoid another transmission gully, but I think that was an example of the government trying to do things differently to get a better result. Um, what do we need to do? Is it, is it Does the vehicle they use matter? What, what What's going wrong? 
I think it's not the vehicle. I think it's trying different things. I think that public-private uh, partnerships is definitely an avenue that we have not effectively implemented yet. So I do think, although we have made mistakes, and like I said, we need to at all costs avoid another transmission gully, we do need to look at some of these partnerships at some other ways of delivering this infrastructure. Because on top of that, as you know, we've seen in this year so many floods, is that we also have to look at um, how are we going to future-proof having climate-resilient infrastructure. One in seven people in our country in New Zealand live in a flood-prone area. So apart just from looking at you know the quality, it's also looking at how are we going to make sure that people who live in these areas actually have the infrastructure to sustain weather events. I mean, have initiatives like uh, setting up the Infrastructure Commission and developing this uh, pipeline of infrastructure projects and the like, is, is that helping improve things? I think it's a good step because um, that's a step towards having more sufficient governance and also having a much open, uh, a more open process towards uh, procurement and delivering on infrastructure. And it's hard in a small country. Um, we have to try different things and we have to keep on trying these different things to make sure that we can actually address this huge and significant infrastructure hole. And, and would it be helpful to have a, a bipartisan or, or multi-party sort of kind of agreement about how we do these things? Absolutely. Having a long-term view, um, this is decades and decades of underinvestment. So we are talking about multiple times that National and Labor has been in power. So it would be good if we could have this Infrastructure Commission that has a 50-year plan, a 100-year plan that can stay away from the political noise and actually focus on delivering infrastructure. Hilmari Schultz, thank you for your time. Thank you. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. The fortunes of NZX-listed software company TradeWindow partly rests on the outcome of a UK High Court trial to determine the identity of the creator of Bitcoin. Will Mace has been looking into the saga for Shoeshine and joins me now. Will, what's the link between TradeWindow and this UK court case? Well, TradeWindow uh, recently did a deal with a company called Enchain, uh, which is a UK-based company um, that is... The chief scientist there, or one of the main promoters and the founder behind Enchain, is a guy called um, Dr. Craig Wright, who claims to be the inventor of Bitcoin. Um, the inventor of Bitcoin is, is known as Satoshi Nakamoto, um, and but is only known sort of on the internet by this pseudonym, um, and everyone realizes that it is a pseudonym, so nobody actually knows who 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 the real person is or group of people. Um, some people have have claimed to be him, including. Um, Dr. Craig, uh, you know, f 2015, I think he, he made this claim, and he's got various documents that he um, uh, shows people to prove this. Um, he's obviously a very smart guy. He is a, an inventor, uh, um, a very smart blockchain um, guy, and Enchain has a huge business uh, that's built up around patents that he's filed. Um, but as to this actual identity of, of being Satoshi, um, it is being tested, in the, as you say, in a, in a court trial um, in the UK, which is due to kick off in January. Um, so that will be really interesting. The thing is, Enchain made a 
an investment, well, was about to make an investment in Trade Window um, 20, to take 20% in return for about 11, 11.1 million, which is sorely needed capital um, at, at Trade Window to, um, you know, which is seeking to um, to fund its software, which it wants to go global. So what does this mean for Trade Window's business? Because it sounds pretty complicated. Yeah. Well, the CEO of Enchain until recently uh, was a guy called Kristen Aga Hansen, and he um, was dismissed recently, and he threw a whole lot of allegations at the company, at Enchain. Um, and... Th- he was dismissed, as were some of the other executives, and there's a huge um, turmoil in the company at the moment, which means it didn't settle that funding deal that it had with um, with Trade Window, even though it was legally obliged to do so. So that means that the funding hasn't come through for Trade Window. Um, Trade Window was definitely relying on that to um, for its working capital um, to pay its staff. So it has said at the start of this month on November 2nd, it said that it... Um, would need to basically pause its uh, innovation and development and really just focus on the businesses that it has at the moment. Um, it's going to sell or divest part of the business as well. Uh, R-Fighter, which is one, part, part, of the, part of the business that it acquired recently, is, it's needing to sell. Um, just to cut costs, um, revenue is going to come down. It's really a retrenchment um, that just um, you know, acknowledges the fact that they need to save money um, and they need to reach break-even and profitability uh, quick smart. So that's where Trade Window is at the moment, and that's kind of why I wanted to take a look at it a bit more closely. Mm-hmm. Trade Window had some ambitious plans that it set out. Do you think it's going to achieve its grand vision? Yeah, the grand vision is of a global trade platform. Um, you know, it has the component parts um that it has acquired or developed in-house over the past couple of years. Um, it's been kind of a capital-intensive process to obviously when you're growing inorganically to acquire businesses um, and then integrate them with what you're doing. <clears throat> so it has, um, Trade Window has a, a variety of sort of applications that sit at, at a certain level. And then the idea for its grand vision is to combine them into a global trade platform that's sort of a, a single sign-on, single infrastructure for you, whether you're a, the New Zealand government customs or a, um, a beef company in India or you know, you're in the US um, as maybe a, a, an enterprise um, resource planning firm, um, you can sign on to this one global platform. It really is an amazing vision and it's, if they can reach that, it, w- it would be um, you know, a, a world-conquering kind of solution. But it's very capital intensive, it seems, and the company obviously hasn't got this capital through yet from um, from Enchain, although they they are still asserting their rights, they say, um, and may still come through. They've also, you know, struggled to get sh- uh, capital through their NZX listing through their shareholders um, in January. I think they asked for twenty million in a capital raise, and they got five point four. So it's kind of wearing thin on on the, on those markets as well. I think just more broadly, it says something about the market for capital in in the software um, sector. Yeah. Will, thanks for your time. Thanks. 
Married couple and former ad execs Steph and Ryan Davies have started a luxury beauty company, Twig, based on the potent New Zealand ingredient Totorol, which comes from naturally felled totara trees. The Totorol is already used by some big global brands, but it will be a first whole range made with it in New Zealand. Steph and Ryan join me now to talk about Twig. And Twig, where's the name from? Well, twig obviously relates to a tree, and our hero ingredient is the bite of Totoro from the Totoro tree, um, and it represents new growth. Um, so we wanted something anchored in, 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 in the tree, and then we've adjusted the spelling to kind of uh, to help support the, the unique message that we have around bite of Totoro and what it can do. So you've created this skincare range, um, but skincare, premium skincare, is a really crowded market. Mm-hmm. How are you standing out in this market? market? So uh, our unique selling proposition is obviously Totorol, uh, but we are using it in far higher doses than it's ever been done before. So um, that's our sort of number one uh, unique difference in the marketplace. And we've chosen to do that because we've identified that you can actually use it in higher doses for maximum efficacy. And really that has to be the number one for any new brand in skincare is is how effective is it? Is it going to do something to my skin? And we we know that it does because of that. And uh, on top of that, we have a, a range of complementary, synergistic, active ingredients that we're using alongside Totorol that are also doing really really important jobs uh, to help reduce environmental damage that gets caused uh, to skin by just that we're all susceptible to um, and that that's really our point of difference is the high potent antioxidants in this range. So you guys are both from a branding background and obviously understand that world very well. Um, what is sort of what are sort of the crucial elements that are required in such a brand to make it pop? And it, you, you're doing this product for export ultimately so mm-hmm. how, how do you make it pop? Well, first of all, it, it's visually, the, the packaging is something quite unique and different, and we've worked with our design agency very closely to help craft that. If you put it all together, it's a small forest of skincare, and that helps connect people to, again, the story of Bite of Totorol, and it's it, it's it's anchored in, in, in nature and, and, and what it can do. Um, in, in that space, we also the uh, sorry the, the sustainability component to how we source that is really important, and then collectively all those elements from the potency of the our hero ingredient, the other active mm-hmm. ingredients, the sustainability side, and the packaging is all something that can kind of collectively mm. tell a really really we think powerful powerful story that stands out from other products on the market. When you look at export potential for the product, where where are you looking primarily? We're looking at uh, lots of global markets. I mean, first and foremost, we're concentrating on establishing a, 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 a local um, retail base here in New Zealand. Um, but we think people overseas will really resonate with with that story. So, if a second kind of target market is Australia, like a lot of a lot of brands, um, but we've got an extensive list of, of markets that we want to, to to reach out to in time. What are some of the risks of the business? I mean, obviously, you're generating sales. You're putting it all back in at the moment for your R&D and whatnot. What What are some of the risks that could, you know, stymie your growth in the next few years? Good question. Probably uh, just cash flow in general is, is probably, for, for many brands, that being the case. But we are reinvesting constantly into the business. You know, we, we, we've taken... 
you, you know, we're not we're not being paid much right now to 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 make sure that every you know every dollar can be be spent into the brands and developing them. But um, we are going through a capital raise uh, at the moment. We're in the early stages, but um, I think yeah, general um, you know business challenges mm. that any startup faces really. Mm. Uh, you have some venture capital parties that you've been talking to. What are they saying about this kind of proposition? Well, the uniqueness, a lot of the organisations we are talking to are New Zealand entities um, and they are really resonating with our the New Zealandness of the, the, the compound, the product by it of Totorol and the way we sustainably source it by adopting this complete circular uh, economy um, and then they're really loving the brands that we produce. So the feedback is is positive um, for us as a startup. It's obviously getting that revenue up in order to kind of reach the, 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 the different um, organisations, funding, um, investment Models. firms that we want to talk to. Mm, yeah. mm. Just finally, you're not the first couple of ad execs who are a couple um, who've started a business and doing that by coming up with the sort of the IP and then contracting the other parts out. What, what do you think happens in an advertising agency mm. that creates people that want to start businesses? I think it's you, you, you're part of these quite often very established brands and you get a little peek behind the curtain on how they operate and you learn a lot around the mm. the, the business-centric um, mm. operations behind it and whatnot. And, of course, from a brand perspective, that's where we um, excel. And I think there's a desire to be able to take those learnings and apply it to, to real life. And certainly when we first got approached to, to join uh, the Cess the family business, um, we looked into detail around how we could add mm. value and once we identified those themes it's when we kind of jumped into it and here we are today. And Steph, is your family proud of what you've done? Oh, immensely. I mean, yeah. They they really uh, had a lot a lot of faith in us, you know. They, they know the careers that we've built and the learnings we've taken from that and 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 knew they were in safe hands to to create something that that would have cut through in the marketplace and really um, take that opportunity to to a hero Totorol and you know provide a platform to to build its awareness. Okay, Stephen Ryan, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website nbr.co.nz.